everybody, Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is April 17th, 2023, 26th day of Nisan, 5783. Been a very intense week all the way around. Um, paid a shiva call to the D family who live up the block and really just watching my entire neighborhood act in unbelievable ways, not just to support the family, but it turns out that the family is supporting everybody else. Um, it's really been a week of um, realizing the strength of the people of Israel, uh, even when it seems like maybe the leadership isn't doing what we'd like them to do. And I've got a really great guest who's about to come on in two minutes. We're going to have a good discussion about that. But to see the so-called little people of Israel, to see uh, Rabbi Leo D and his daughters and his son um, cope and inspire everybody else, the tremendous amount of faith that they have is really um, it's absolutely astonishing. It's uh, it's almost otherworldly, and uh, and to be you know close to that is really something else. Uh, and then this morning I got to speak to the uh, associated the the basically the Federation of Baltimore. They're here for the upcoming 75 years celebrations, and of course uh, also Memorial Day. And we have coming up we have uh, Memorial Day for the Holocaust as well. So I spoke to them early this morning. So there's been a lot going on. I was in Sebastia yesterday, the ancient capital of Israel and got all up. We were the only people there. We went, I had a full bus. We had army escort. And it turns out that the Arab village right next to there is creeping its way, not so slowly, right up on this ancient site, which has been really abandoned um, by everybody. And it's just, I mean, it's an incredible place to be. Tanakh in hand, reading about Elijah and Elisha and Ahab and Jezebel and all these stories absolutely come to life in this place. And then you look around at a site that should be one of the most important and most visited sites um, for school children and for really everybody who's interested in history or in the Bible. And it's just being literally torn up and stolen away from us. And it's just, it's incredibly upsetting. And, uh, and you know, there's just a lot going on here and a lot of things that are fabulous about this country and a lot of things that we could improve. And on that note, I am very, very honored to have as my guest with me tonight, uh, doctor and former ambassador, Michael Oren. Uh, born in New York, educated in Princeton and Columbia, visiting professor at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown, and holds not less than four degrees in Middle East history and received four honorary doctorates, moved to Israel in the 1970s, joined the IDF, served as a paratrooper in Lebanon, uh, advisor to Israel's delegation to the UN. Just, I mean, I know that you've all heard of him. In 2009, appointed Israel's ambassador to the United States, where he interacted with just about everybody who's anybody, um, and with crew issues, of course, like the Iron Dome defense and Iran nuclear threat, and very close and made a tremendous effort to reach out to communities in the United States and defending Israel in every possible forum. And after returning, Israel was elected to the Knesset, to Israel's parliament. I told you we could have a discussion about politics yeah. in a minute, where he has done so many things, some of which he can't talk about and some of which he can, and has written numerous books, which I have to tell you are fantastic. And the last book is really, which is about to be launched, and that's why we're having this interview today um, in 2048. Because while we're all talking about Israel's 75th birthday, Michael Oren is looking to the next quarter century and to Israel's centennial. And written kind of a guidebook, if you will, on what we need to do to make the next 25 years even, you know, to put Israel really like at the top of the chart in so many different ways. So, uh, Dr. Michael Oren, thank you so much for joining us here today. And I'm so excited to talk to you about this new book. I'm delighted to be with you, Eve. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to talk about Israel 2048, the rejuvenated state. 
the book is very interesting because it's in Hebrew, English, and Arabic, and uh, it's divided into chapters. I mean, it's like very easy read because it just gives you the medical system and the army and the state of gender equality. Um, what, what kicked off for you the idea to write this book? Well, it started when I was a deputy minister to the prime minister. Um, who was the current prime minister as well. One day I walked into Mr. Netanyahu and I said, you know, we are so, so deeply engaged with current crises. We never think about our future. We never pause to think about long term. What, what, what Israel do we want to leave to our children and grandchildren? What Israel do we want to see on its 100th birthday, 2048? And uh, prime minister got very excited about it. And we decided to launch a, a state commission, uh, which is a formal body. It takes a lot of paperwork, a lot of legal loopholes. And um, we began to, to, to establish a commission and the government fell. Uh, and then I moved this project together with my friend Natan Sharansky to the Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. We had an amazing conversation for about a year discussion with uh, Jewish thinkers uh, on Israel's future, particularly on the, on the future of Israel diaspora relations. And then COVID hit. <laughs> and uh, with COVID, I retreated as most of us did to my room and I took that opportunity to actually put these ideas down on paper. So what you have there is really the conclusion of, uh, of about 40 years of public involvement in Israel on, on pretty much every level. Um, and, uh, and my ideas about the future, I resolved, Eve, that I would not shy away from any issue, no matter how complex or controversial, and that it would be very policy oriented. Um, it wasn't going to be theoretical. Now, this is what Israel has to do, A, B, C, D, in order to ensure that our second century will be as successful as our first. So a couple of things I want to ask you. One is since the, since like, I guess the book went to print, we've had all these demonstrations and all this issue specifically about judicial reform. Would you have changed what you wrote? Well, first of all, I'll tell my audience what you wrote about, what, what you think about the reform, because you did have a chapter on that. Would you have changed um, what you wrote given you know what's happened in the last few weeks, couple of months? No, not at all. No, I would have gone a little bit more detail because uh, we've become a lot more adept at the issue. Uh, of judicial reform, but I wrote that chapter about three years ago, and I was working in the Knesset with then uh, Justice Minister Ayala Chaket on a program of, of reforming the Supreme Court, because it was clear to me, it was clear to just about everybody, that the situation was no longer sustainable, that the Supreme Court did not reflect uh, public opinion in virtually any way, as opposed to the United States, where you know American citizens have not one but two opportunities to influence the composition of the Supreme Court. They vote for president, you vote for, for Senate. Here we had no, almost no input whatsoever. And so the, the, the Supreme Court was basically perpetuating a worldview that was circa 1990 uh, because judges were, were choosing their own successors and quite naturally judges will choose people who agree with them, not who disagree with them. And uh, the Knesset was moving, <clears throat> moving significantly rightward. And so the gap in worldviews between the Supreme Court and the Knesset got wider and wider, and the Supreme Court was repeatedly turning, overturning legislation passed by the democratically elected Knesset of Israel. So that was not a sustainable situation, um, among others. There were other different problems there, so it was addressing that in Knesset then. And I wrote these ideas into this book. This is now era of COVID, um, some time ago already, and it turns out that these are precisely the issues uh, which have proven so... Um, controversial, if not uh, combustible in Israeli society. Um, but I remain a, a strong proponent of judicial reform, uh, though my approach differs from that of the initial proposals by this government, um, which seemed willing to do away with the principle of, judi of, of judicial review, the notion that the Supreme Court has the last word 
on legislation, which is the pillar of just about any democratic society in the world, including the United States. So what do you make of the fact that so many people who, you know, seem to be involved in Israel, seem to know what's going on, have come out against it? And people who are on record as being for judicial reform before the last two months, including some former prime ministers. Well, there's a great deal of sort of disinformation, misinformation about it. Uh, I'm not sure that all the people who are opposed to this understand entirely what they're opposed to. And there's a certain momentum to it. Um, but the fact is, I think the, the, the great majority of Israelis understand that there has to be reform. Um, what those same majority of Israelis want to see is a continued check on government. And, you know, we have a, a weak system. I always say that uh, America is a is a weak society, but with strong institutions. Israel is a strong society with weak institutions. And um, that why is our, 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 our institutions are weakened by the fact that we have not three co-equal branches of government, but only two, because the Knesset and the, legis- and the executive are pretty much the same. And the only check on those two branches of government is the judiciary. And we're also weakened by the fact that we don't have a constitution. And uh, so the Supreme Court, when it t- decides, uh, when it presides and judges a piece of legislation, it can't do that on the basis of finding it unconstitutional. It has to find other uh, bases using this notion of unreasonableness, which is highly, highly subjective. And uh, as you can imagine, so the, we need that check. And that check is if you begin to fiddle with the check, um, then you're going to have unbridled executive and legislative power, which I don't think people want. Um, and my contact with you know the Israeli public, I'm living here in South Tel Aviv. It's a it's a different uh, demographic. I want to tell you politically, ec- socially, economically, um, and um, and they see things much differently than people say half a mile north of me. Um, it's very different, different universes. Um, but I think people agree that we all need those checks on government, and um, and that's my starting point. You don't think we should have a constitution, though. I don't. I've been a long opponent of constitutions. <laughs> That's interesting. It doesn't it doesn't exactly jive with my position on judicial reform, because, first of all, I don't think we'll ever be able to get a constitution. I don't think the United States today could get a constitution. All right. I think it's very difficult in the 21st century with the Internet and all that combined uh, to actually get, you know, Arabs, Jews, leftists, rightists, uh, religious, secular to agree on a constitution. Um, I actually think and I have thought now for well over 20 years that it's the absence of a constitution that allows Israel to thrive the way it does, because we, we allow a lot of things to go on in the gray. And the minute you take them out of the gray and force people to act in a certain way, the minute you force every, every school in this country to fly the Israeli flag, uh, or for every school to sing Hatikva in the morning, you're gonna see what happens. And a constitution is, is not particularly flexible. Um, and we have, been, we have been able to exist in the gray. I, I like the system of basic laws, uh, I don't like what's happened to the system where the basic laws have become proven to be very, I don't know, fungible. You know, a government comes in and wants to change the basic law to let a certain minister or a certain government to to uh, to get it to power. That's not what a basic law should be. So basic law should be very, very fundamental. It should be a collection of laws like the Bill of Rights. We've lost that principle. We have to regain that, I think, the seriousness about our, about our, uh, our basic laws. But if we're already speaking about areas of gray, you speak at length about the fact that there's too much corruption in this country, as there is in every country. But there are particular reasons, perhaps, that pertain to Israel that are different from other places. Not that it really matters in the bottom line. Well, we're in the Middle East, where it has different levels of corruption. But I once asked, I think I, I relate this in the book. I was on TV with the former head of the corruption agency and the police. And I asked them that same question you're asking me. Are we more corrupt 
than other societies. And he said, absolutely, we're more corrupt than other Western societies. And I said, why? How do you explain this? He says, well, you know, for, for 2,000 years, we're living in the diaspora. In order to survive, we had to cut a lot of corners and, uh, and, and somehow, you know, maybe cheat <laughs> on the system. Today, those corners are our corners and that system is our system. And so we're cheating one another. Um, so it's high. I tell you the truth, though, um, having said that, uh, we've had a, uh, a president go to prison for rape. We've had a prime minister go to prison uh, for corruption. Other ministers go to prison for corruption. Uh, here, the United States is being uh, torn apart over the question of whether Donald Trump uh, should stand trial uh, for certain for certain alleged crimes. Uh, in the United States, you've had many uh, presidents, not many, you've had a good number of presidents who have been an, accused of crimes that have never stood trial. Um, so in Israel, I think much to our credit, nobody's above the law. Right. That's that's for sure. That's for sure. And in Israel, of course, we have a situation that virtually no other country has, which is that we're constantly in a state of war. And unfortunately, we've got threats from within and from without. Passover, I was up in the galley and I'm sitting reading the newspaper one day and I hear a succession of booms and we were being bombed from Lebanon. And I go down mm. to Ashkelon and we go into the safe room because we're being bombed from Gaza. How do you see? And, and now it seems like kind of things are tightening. You know, there's a feeling in Israel almost of like suspended animation, like something's going to happen. We're just not sure what it's going to be and how big it's going to be and when exactly it's going to happen. Well, I wish I could say the same. <laughs> I wish I could say the same. I, I wish I could say the same. I have a very deep gut feeling of what it's going to look like and, uh, and when. And, uh, and I've been working on the, the Iranian issue now for oh, well over 17 years. And, um, and I've come to an understanding that uh, Iran is, is geared toward a confrontation with us. And as Iran, uh, nears the the atomic threshold capacity the ability to make a, an atomic weapon within very very short period of time a matter of days that's an untenable situation for the state of israel it will uh, reduce our deterrence power to close to zero i mean because this those same rockets are fired at us from hezbollah or hamas we go to respond defend ourselves we're going to have a nuclear iranian nuclear weapon weapon pressed to our forehead and we see how that just how mr putin's threat of using nuclear weapons has greatly impaired the West's ability to aid Ukraine. Uh, people are afraid. And so we can't afford that. Um, this is, the, Ukraine is here for us. And, um, and the Iranian, uh, the regime now feels that it's on a roll. Uh, it has now reconciled with Saudi Arabia. Uh, it has signed an immense uh, treaty uh, with, with China. It has a strategic alliance with Russia. Um, it is, it's, it's, it's doing well. And it's got an America that is still withdrawing uh, from the Middle East, if not from much of the world. And it's got an Israel, which uh, is now bogged down in internal dissent and strife. Uh, it's an ideal situation. And that these attacks that you mentioned, Eve, whether in the North or in the South, were not accidental. They're probes. And they're checking our readiness. Because um, I feel that that type of confrontation is coming. And should Israel be become embroiled with Iran? Uh, that's not a that's not a local conflict. That's a regional war uh, involving Hezbollah, involving Hamas, involving Shiite militias in Iraq, involving Houthi rebels in Yemen. And Israel could be subjected to um, thousands of rockets fired at us per day, not hundreds, but thousands, um, which would very quickly overwhelm that Iron Dome system that I helped bring to Israel. Yes, uh, it has its limits and uh, we will have to act. We'll have to act in very robust and precipitous ways, uh, including the use of ground forces. 
And maybe preemptively. I mean, the conversation that we hear now is we're going to have a 1967 or we're going to have a 1973, you know, because is world opinion that important to us that we're going to have to take a first blow in order so that we can say to people, we defended ourselves. Where do you see this? Never again. I say this on Holocaust Memorial Day. Never again, October 6, 1973, where Israel didn't launch a preemptive strike in order to satisfy Henry Kissinger. We don't do that again. It cost us 2,600 dead. And uh, we won't do that again. And if the world is going to condemn us, the world is going to condemn us. Uh, what, are our, what are our options here? I say this with, with humility. I, I've served as the CNN uh, Middle East analyst, the CBS Middle Eastern analyst. Uh, and as you know, uh, tough coverage, tough, sometimes brutal coverage. Nobody ever died from it here. Okay? And uh, as unpleasant as it is. And, um, and we have to do what we have to do to defend ourselves. And that's been the, the lesson of our history. And it's interesting, you know, I wrote this book about the 1967 war, and there are a lot of parallels, because back then we were surrounded by Arab armies. And the fear in the Israeli government was that if, say, the Palestinians launched a terrorist attack and we try to retaliate, that those Arab armies would pounce on us. Well, right now, if Hamas or Hezbollah launches a terrorist attack against us and we try to retaliate, we could be the target for nuclear retaliation. It's a very similar situation. And so in order to defend ourselves, to uphold our deterrence power, we may, we may well have to act preemptively. Do you think as former ambassador and someone who still, I imagine, has many, many contacts all over the world, that we are in this alone? I think at the end of the day, we're always in it alone. And no one's going to fight our battles for us. We may, uh, we can expect to receive from the United States um, resupply of vital ammunition uh, we can expect the United States perhaps to cast a veto in the in the Security Council because um, it's coming. Um, but at the end of the day, Israel must defend itself by itself. And uh, it's a mistake to look to, to outside powers to defend ourselves. Let, let's recall that that six day war victory we fought without international allies. Uh, uh, we did not have a single American bullet here. Uh, we used French arms. And, uh, and it's true, in 1973, again, we fought and America resupplied us. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to fight our battles ourselves. Nor do we want anyone to fight our battles for us. But it, it would be nice if they helped us avoid them to begin with. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So on to perhaps more like uh, s- smaller items, because nothing gets bigger than the security. But the day to day, which I'm going to assume one way or the other that we are going to this country is going to survive. The question is the price that we're going to pay for that survival. And I think both you and I, with all our skin in this particular game, meaning our, our, li- our, our lives and the lives of the people that we love the best, this is not in any way a theoretical conversation. But as you mentioned, you wrote this book during COVID, and a lot of the discussion at the time was about the medical uh, situation here, the medical system, from which I'm pretty involved. My husband's a physician. My son had to study medicine outside of the country because of affirmative action. So he had to study in Italy, and now he's in the United States, and the odds are very small that he is going to become home, going to be coming home. And, uh, and we've seen for a long, long time that we do not have adequate care. Um, we don't have enough beds. We don't have enough doctors. And you talk about raising the number of beds, I believe, from 35,000 to 50 and, and two new medical schools. And all of your ideas, I mean, I, I read the book and the ideas are amazing. I, I, I wanted to re- be critical about reading the book because it makes a more interesting interview, but there was very little that I could really disagree with in, in your plans for the country. And the, the question is, 
But how do we make this happen? You know, I mean, you put down these ideas. Uh, I bet nobody would disagree with you, but you talk about policy and not just theory. How does it happen? An important point I must make is that the, the book is designed not to persuade the reader, but to engage the reader in a dialogue. And uh, the goal of the NGO, which we created around the book, which is uh, Israel uh, 2048, the second century, uh, is, designed, is designed to uh, stimulate and facilitate a national and in some cases an international uh, discussion about Israel's future, because uh, we're all very much have skin in the game, as you said, about Israel's future. Um, but how, how then do you move from these ideas, these proposals to policy? And by the way, that's the, I would say that's the fact of the of this NGO. That's the most our most frequently asked question. And it's this uh, having been in politics, I know how those particular hot dogs are made. And they're made not by an Israeli by a member of Knesset waking up in the morning and saying, Eureka, I have an idea for a piece of legislation. Uh, it's uh, it happens when there's a knock on that uh, Knesset member's door and he opens the door and there's 100 people out there saying, if you want to get reelected, this is what you have to do. And so the, we in the NGO, in, in the Israel 2048 um, movement, we are in the awareness and mobilization business. We're in the education business. Um, just a, a case, uh, the, the issue of the Bedouin, I spent a lot of time talking about Bedouin in this book, and I lived in the South for years, and I, I saw the South disappear literally before my eyes under illegal uh, Bedouin uh, building and a complete absence of Israeli sovereignty south of Beersheba. The same thing is true in the Galilee, by the way. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. And uh, but in, in Beersheba, in south of Beersheba, 62 percent of the country is just disappearing. And um, I mean, how many Israelis actually know that there are 400,000 illegal Bedouin structures in the Negev and that our police will not take down a single one of them? You build a centimeter addition to your balcony and you're going to have the police there right away, aren't you? Uh, not 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 south of Beersheba. And uh, so we have to I feel that there's a need to. Uh, awaken Israelis uh, to what's going on in their own country and to stress the fact that this is not going away and that you may live in, in Gushdan, you may live in Herzliya, uh, but an hour, hour and a half away, you're going into an area that is complete, that is the equivalent of the Wild West. And, um, and that begins the process through which those hundred people will knock on that Knesset member's door and then wake her up in the morning and say, this is what you have to do in order to stay in office. So I'm going to represent the little people here for a minute. And I think that quite a few of us do know what is going on and that that may be the reason for the results of the last election, because there's a sense of helplessness amongst your average Israeli. Like we own a piece of property, as it turns out, we own a piece of land in the Galilee. We bought it for ideological reasons. We wanted our name in the taboo. And we went up there to check it out last week. And there are three Arab houses on it. And they're squatting on the land. And there's nobody to talk to. You talk about the police not destroying the houses in the Negev. They're, they're doing the same. There's just no one to talk to. And you talk to the farmers there. And their equipment is being stolen or destroyed all the time. Their herds the are disappearing. Are I know. Their herds are disappearing. And there's a sense that the country isn't as sovereign as we would like it to be. That perhaps there has been too much concern about the outside threats, with all due respect to Iran and Saudi Arabia. And I'm not minimizing that, not for one second but that inside the borders of the country, our personal security has gone down. And even being able, as you said, to park your car on the side, you know, I'd like to park your car on the side of the road to take a hike and then I give your car will not be there when you get back. 
And there's a sense of lawlessness in the country. And, you know, you mentioned Ayala Chiquette. So I have to say, and my, my listeners know this, I voted for her in the last election, even knowing that she wasn't going to pass, because I thought that really what, the kind of politician that she was, I had tremendous respect for her and the things that she was doing quietly. But she was also very involved in trying to go down to the Negev and trying to wake people up to what was happening there. And I think a lot of the people are awake. Are we? And, and that that's possibly what the last elections were all about. But so where are we now? So... So we have a different police minister and we have a different this and we have a different that. Is anything moving? Is anybody going to go down and face riot? You know, there's almost a sense of if you are, if you misbehave in this country, then you will get more than if you're a law-abiding citizen. And I'm saying this with a tremendous amount of pain because I've been a law-abiding citizen my entire life. And, but it seems like the people are getting away with things. And those of us friars, to use the Israeli term, who pay our taxes and send our kids to the army and, and don't enclose our porches without getting permission from everybody we have to get permission are are idiots. Because then there's other people running around doing whatever they want, building wherever they want, getting away with sometimes literally murder. So in, uh, you're hearing my frustration and I'm coming to you. I hear it somebody, all. I share and, it. And I'm I sure you have the same. Where do we go I would, with this? I would, but I, I'll put a finer point on it, Eve. Um, you know, the Iranian threat is a strategic threat. I wouldn't couch it right now as an existential threat. But the Bedouin issue, among others, is an existential threat. It actually threatens our, our continued existence as a sovereign Jewish state. And, uh, and I can so go into great detail So if you were prime minister, horrible, horrible thing to throw at somebody. If you were prime minister, what yeah. would you do tomorrow? I, I, would tri- I would triple, if not quadruple, the police budget. And I would uh, cripple or quadruple the size of our police force. Because what, what the police says, and I'm very close to the police. I work with the police. I'm actually the head of another NGO that supports the police. What do you have, a 36-hour day oh, as opposed to the rest of us who only have 24? <laughs> Where, how do you get all this done? <laughs> I do a lot. And my daughter-in-law is a police officer, a uh, great police officer. Great, uh, great respect for her. I'm and sure you do. They all tell me the same thing. The police, the, the, we're hemorrhaging police. The police do not earn enough money. They work ridiculous hours. They're subject to abuse. And when we say to them, okay, go go remove this illegal structure from your property or an entire village in the negative, they say, listen, with less than a brigade, we can't do that. You can't send a squad car down there. We'll get killed. These people have guns. They really will get killed. Yeah. Oh, yes, they have guns. So I understand them completely. And turning away from the police, to my mind, is, a, is an abdication of, of Israelis' responsibility to sovereignty. And I think I said in this in the book is that, you know, for 2000 years, we did not know what sovereignty was. And all of a sudden, one day we woke up and wow, we are sovereign. And, and we really don't have a deep understanding of it because we have large swaths of territory and big parts of our population uh, over which Israel ex- exercises minimal, if at all, uh, sovereignty. And, uh, and that's true, not just the Bedouin. And uh, listen, we have no control over the Haredi school system. We are we have we are educating an entire population at less than third world levels, and that's another existential threat. Because at a certain point, that the country will not be just defensible, not defensible. It will not be sustainable economically, and uh, and everyone who can will simply leave. And these are the real threats I see in this book. But I should say this, and it's very important because even while writing the book, uh, even while discussing these issues. And during Corona, we had a lot of Zoom talks about these issues. It's very easy to get discouraged. It's very easy to wake up in the morning and say, oh, why bother? It's just too much. And here it helps to be um, come at this issue 
of 2048 from several perspectives. Uh, one is a personal perspective. I have been living here for 45 years, and I've seen this country transform in ways that were utterly, utterly unimaginable when the day I stepped off that plane. If you had told me that someday Israel would have peace with Jordan and Egypt and four other Arab countries and peace, we have relations with India and China and Russia and the satellite Soviet countries and- And be exporting um, water. Africa and South America. <laughs> be a water power. on and on and on. You know, we were poor. our major export item when I arrived here was 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 citrus, was oranges, and um, and that a million Soviet Jews would come here and tens of thousands of Ethiopian Jews would come here. I'd say you were nuts. I say you're absolutely off your gourd. Okay, so that's a personal perspective. Then there's a historical perspective. And I'm an historian by training, and I I know what this place looked like on May 14, 1948. Six hundred thousand Jews here. All right, that's the population of Boston, by the way. All we had with nothing, no allies, only adversaries, no natural resources, nothing, nothing. And look what we built. And that's important. But, you know, the last perspective in many ways is the most important perspective. And that is a perspective of belief, of faith, uh, of deeply believing that we're here for a purpose. Deeply believing, deeply believing in the meaning of Jewish history. And um, if you have that faith, it enables you to overcome a lot of obstacles. I've seen that this week on a personal level with my neighbors sure. who are going through an unspeakable tragedy. It's only the faith. It's only the faith that, I mean, he's, you know, he said it over and over. He would still make Aliyah, you know, and his wife would have said the same, that this is a much bigger picture than any one of us. And when someone can say that in the depth of grief that I hope I'm never have to fathom, then that, and, and I'm sure he's not the only one. I mean, he, he has the spotlight because of a tragedy, but I think that there's a lot of people out there who understand that as well. Well, you're talking to one. And uh, in our family, we had, uh, a victim, we had a victim of a terrorist attack. And I think that nobody in my family said, okay, this has happened here and we're leaving. And or that making uh, Aliyah was a mistake. In fact, my kids came to me at the height of the Second Intifada, which was the darkest period in Israel's history, by the way. We almost lost this country. And they came to me and they had lost friends. My, my son came to me and said that he had lost, he had been to more funerals of his friends than bar mitzvahs. And, but they said to me, Abba, moving to Israel was the greatest single blessing you could have given us. And that's amazing. So it, there is, as I said before, the strength of Israeli society is just remarkable. There's nothing like it in the world. Uh, we should have stronger institutions. And, and I think maybe perhaps leaders in different areas that are, are a little more in tune with the people. I mean, one of the big questions, and I don't, I don't know if it's existential, but maybe it is, is that who is a Jew? You know, I mean, we have, we have this disparity between who's, who can make Aliyah and then who is halachically, according to Jewish law, considered a Jew. You know, somebody told me that 70% of the Ukrainians that we have brought in and saved in the last year wouldn't fit into that category of being Jewish. So, you know, we talk about this being a Jewish state. To you, what does that mean? Where do you see that going? I think we have to, re we have to reach a, a new definition of it, one that incorporates an Israeli national component. Um, and what's happened with the, the central rabbinate is the chief rabbinate is it, it is so alienated, so many Israeli Jews who are actually halakhically Jews. So there was a report in the newspaper this week that said uh, half of all the married couples who, who could be married under the rabbinate are choosing to get married abroad now. And because they cannot stomach the thought of dealing with the, with the chief rabbinate. And that's 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 not a, ten a tenable situation. We are, you know, we are the Jewish state. We're the Jewish national state. We are not a theocracy. And that we have to remind ourselves of that once in a while.
But again, you know, how do we go about turning these, and I agree with you on all these points, into policy? I mean, it's the same thing with, let's say, changing the way that people are elected to the Knesset. You're asking people who are close to the plate to change the shape of the plate. You know, yeah. it's, it's kind of impossible to ask people who are in power, whether it's in the rabbinate or in politics or whatever it is, or, you know, have a, have a monopoly on cottage cheese prices, whatever it is, to change the laws that they are invested in and doing quite well with, and it's investing them with power. How do we, how do, we do that when the majority isn't happy with what's happening? Well, election time, that's when the knock comes on the door. You want us to vote for you? This is what we expect. This has to be in your platform. And um, I, I think that if there's a silver lining to what's going on now in this country with over the reform is that it, it's kind of a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call about a lot of issues. Uh, we mentioned the Bedouin issue. We mentioned the Haredi issue. Um, I think there should be a wake-up call with the fact that uh, certainly in my neighborhood, um, many people see this whole controversy as not being about the, the judicial reform, but being about uh, ethnicity and class and power. And um, to recognize that Israel has many fault lines. We have deep divisions, and not just between Arab and Jew or left and right, but between Ashkenazim and Mizrahim, um, between religious, secular, uh, between periphery and center in Tel Aviv. Um, many, many divisions, and that these can't be papered over. You know, in many ways, it's, it's, the, it's the fruit of our peacemaking abilities. Uh, we were held together through several generations um, by an external enemy. And now we see Israel does not face a conventional military Arab threat. And that was, uh, that was part of our reality for many decades. Hmm? Keyword being conventional. Yes, conventional. We don't see Arab armies massing on our borders. The notion of, you know, Arab tanks rumbling through Tel Aviv, which was a very real one of the books that had such an impact. I, I, I gather I'm older than you because I'm pretty much older than anybody. But uh, just quite, but in, after 67, there was well, a book I see green called, bananas on the shelf behind <laughs> you. Though, so you're still okay. I know there was a book published called If Israel Had Lost the War. Everybody in my generation read that book. And it has tanks rumbling through the, the ruins, Egyptian tanks rumbling through the mm -hmm. ruins of Tel Aviv and, and uh, Moshe Dayan being taken out to be executed by the Arabs. It was a nightmarish book that had a big impact on us. And that is inconceivable today. Arab tanks rolling through Tel Aviv? Can't. Arab, uh, Iranian missiles raining on Tel Aviv? Uh, Hamas missiles raining on Tel Aviv? Definitely. We could make the argument that it's worse. Perhaps. Um, though I think that... Uh, for the most part, our enemies understand that with, with missiles, they can't defeat us. They can ruin our day. I, I, this is another discussion, but I think that the, um, they're very, very sophisticated on the other side. And their main goal is not to destroy us, but to deny us the right to defend ourselves by getting us to kill people on their side. That's a fascinating sentence. Can you unpack that a little more? Yeah, let's see. I was, well, I, something I've dealt with for a long time. For example, I, I was very proud to bring Iron Dome, but Iron Dome is kind of a double-edged sword because it creates disproportionality, a uh, situation where uh, very few Israelis are getting hurt, but great numbers of Arabs, Palestinians, Lebanese are getting hurt. And so the world, the world comes down on us and we get condemned for, for responding disproportionately. Um, and that's precisely what the enemy wants. They want to erode. They want to chip away at our right to defend ourselves and ultimately our right to exist as a sovereign Jewish state. And they do it war after war after war incrementally. And I see how that, that, that right has been impugned in the world, uh, war after war. And, uh, and that we have to be aware of that. 
So ironically, because we've been militarily strong and been able to not lose the wars, we lose people, but in the end we, we win the wars, they're coming at us in a different way, through public opinion, through trying to demoralize and they us. Don't care, and they don't care how many they lose. They don't care. They, they, they want to create a situation where we cannot defend ourselves. All we can do is fire Iron Dome until we run out of Iron Dome. And we will have no, uh, no right to react offensively against our enemies. And then what happens? Um, well, they believe that, that the world will prevent us from defending ourselves. Um, we have to show them that uh, the world will not prevent us from defending ourselves. It's very difficult. My experience, both as an historian, both as a soldier and as a, as a diplomat, has been that uh, pretty much when the United States says stop, stop, we stop. Our ability to, um, to defy America's will uh, in wartime is very difficult. So are we really Early sovereign? Minute. We are as sovereign as we might be externally for a small state. We have to remember that we are a small state. And in many ways, this is the lesson of our Bible, uh, Eve. Uh, we were a small country having to navigate through some pretty big, bad empires. You know, read Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and ultimately, we didn't succeed very well. Um, we have to learn from our mistakes, understand that we are a small country that has to navigate. Uh, but our biggest challenges to, to our sovereignty are not external, they're internal. No, I agree with you. I, I think that, uh, first of all, we're not enough Israelis are aware of how fragile this country is. And I would even go further to say that not enough Jews around the world are aware of how fragile mm. this country is, which is why oh, not have the temerity to attack Israel, not mm. realizing. And again, mm. we're on the eve of, you mm. know, of Holocaust Memorial Day. Mm. We've been there and we've done that. We're not doing that again. Uh -huh. I mean, they're really playing with fire. Eve, I'm going to have to wrap up. I have a speech tonight. Yes, for, uh, and just tell us about for, the for launch of the book. And uh, in the, the book, pardon me, the book, the book will be launched at the Beckin Center on Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. uh, and I invite anybody, listeners, to please come and hear it. And uh, be interesting conversation between uh, Gil Troy and myself. Great thinker, Gil. We love Gil. Be and where's interested. the book available for those who are not in the country? Yes, you. It, for it's uh, there's a website up, Israel 2048. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. It's Dr. Been a, Michael Oren. And it's been really engaging. Real... To the degree it's been pleasant, it's been pleasant. They'll be talking about some very difficult <laughs> the things. The topic wasn't, but the conversation right. was. Okay. Thank you so much. And, and I'm going to speak, I think, here for a lot of people. Thank you for a life devoted to the Jewish people. It's been my honor and privilege. I know it hasn't been boring, but, and it has to have been incredibly <laughs> yeah. frustrating. But at the end of the day, you can look around and I think say that you have done mm -hmm. more than almost anybody to do whatever you can to ensure the survival of the state and our people. And for that, personally, I thank you. Thank you. I, I, people have given more. I'll be at that shiva tomorrow morning. Dr. Michael Oren on his book, 2048, The Rejuvenated State. Uh, a lot to think about. And uh, I, just, I, I just do want to end this particular show, since you will be listening to it on, uh, on Holocaust Memorial Day. Um, we've taken many blows, the Jewish people, over many, many millennia. We're here, and we have all survived, and we're not going anywhere. So with all the problems and the issues, and I don't hesitate to bring them up on this show, you hear everything raw and honest, and don't paper anything up, because I don't believe that that's how we can solve things, is by denying that they're out there. Um, but don't for one minute think in any way, shape, or form, that this is not a people who has tremendous faith in God and whom we believe deeply. He has tremendous faith in us. We have a lot yet to do, and uh, we're not going anywhere. So um, in memory of the six million for whom Israel was established a few years too late, 
and uh, in honor of all the Jews and all of our friends around the world who do understand the bigger picture and right from wrong. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network, and thanks to Tabitha and to Ben and to all of you. Take care, everybody, and goodbye for now.